Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 17. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with John Rivenberg, owner and winemaker of Kerrville Hills Winery and new president of the Texas Hill Country Wineries Association. I'll talk to John about his history in the Texas wine industry, the wine incubator he's running at Kerrville Hills, his passion for the Tanat grape, and more. I've also got a rundown of everything you need to know about Tanat, one of the top 10 red grapes grown in Texas. First, Texas wineries are in the news. The Texas Hill Country is in Travel and Leisure Magazine's list, the top 50 places to travel in 2021. The article reads, comprising over 20 towns, along with plenty of lush, loping countryside, the Hill Country has an inimitable charm that those outside of the state just seem to be catching on to. Experience the best in Texas terroir by visiting driftwood-based wineries like the renowned Fall Creek Vineyards, run by one of the founding families of the Texas wine industry, an acclaimed Dukeman family winery, which makes exceptional wines. Try their award-winning Alianico from Italian grape varieties. Fort Worth also made the list at number 15. Rania Zayat has been named one of the most inspiring people of 2021 by Wine Industry Advisor. Rania is the founder of Wonder Women of Wine, which recently relaunched with a new name, Lift Collective. She's also wine director at Austin's Buffalina. The Lift Collective seeks to bring attention to the gap between the many women working in the wine industry and the limited number leading it. The organization supports gender equity by sponsoring scholarships and networking opportunities. Lift Collective has just announced the dates for the 2021 virtual conference. It'll be held on Tuesday, March 23rd, and Wednesday, March 24th. Follow Lift Collective ORG on Instagram to find out more. Messina Hoff has recently unveiled three new wines with augmented reality labels. By downloading an app called Messina Hoff Augmented Reality, you can explore Messina Hoff's brand history, see food and wine pairings, and get more information about winemaking. The AR labels were made in conjunction with Vision Production Group. Messina Hoff is launching these wine labels in tandem with the debut of their newest location in Richmond, Texas. It's called Harvest Green. Michelle Williams published a thorough and important article about pesticide drift for winebusiness.com. Several Texas wine industry players are quoted in the article called Off-Target Herbicide Drift Threatens Vineyards Across the U.S., This is certainly a troubling issue for the Texas wine industry and one that has significant short and long-term impact. Hopefully those involved will find solutions that work before it's too late. I'll link to that article in the show notes. The Texom International Wine Awards competition is now open for entries. The pandemic delayed the competition this year, but it's currently on the books for late April. Texas wineries always have a good showing at this prestigious event. Find out how to enter your wines by visiting texom.com. And if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and you might be interested in volunteering at the event, let me know. I've volunteered the past two years and have had a lot of fun and met some really nice people. The Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association has announced plans for a virtual forum on four days in late February and throughout March. There's a winery track, a vineyard track, a tasting room track, and more with 16 total sessions. Early bird pricing lasts through January, so act fast. 
Visit txwines.org for information about registering. There are also sponsorship opportunities and virtual booth opportunities. I'm excited about signing up for sessions on new grape varieties in Texas, the future of wine marketing, and a vineyard management session with friends of the podcast, Mara and Dan Sharp of Sharp Family Vineyards out in the Davis Mountain ABA. That session will be moderated by Daniel Pate of Apical, Texas, who was a guest on the podcast last fall. Maybe I'll see you there. A new federal law means you might soon start seeing Texas wine in new sizes on your retail shelf. Previously, there were nine acceptable sizes. Now we've got 12. The change was made in order to keep wine competitive next to alternative products on the shelves. The new sizes are 355 milliliters, which is the size that White Claw comes in, a 250 milliliter aluminum can size, that's a, also a skinny can, and finally a 200 milliliter size, which is a half pint. This is typically seen in other countries holding sparkling or ice wine. The new rules went into effect December 29th, so look for these new sizes soon. COVID has certainly rocked the wine world, although one lasting effect may make Texas drinkers happy. A new bill could make alcohol to go permanent. Senate Bill 298 and House Bill 1094 would allow Texans to buy alcohol from licensed venues via pickup and delivery for off-premise consumption. The Texas Restaurant Association, the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission, or TABC, and stakeholders from the restaurant industry are working with Senator Hancock from the DFW area and Representative Guerin of Fort Worth to introduce the bill this session. The governor is said to approve of this concept, so if the bill passes in both houses, he's expected to sign it. And that is the Texas Wine News. Now, my interview with John Rivenberg is coming right up, but because we spend quite a bit of time in the interview talking about the red grape to not, I decided to open this episode with a list of the top 13 things you need to know about to not. Number one, to not is one of the most tannic, robust, and deeply colored wines. It has the highest polyphenols, which are antioxidants, of all red wines. That sounds to me like to not is the healthiest red wine you can drink. Number two, Tanat is native to southwest France. There's also a bit grown in Italy, but it's widely grown in Uruguay. In fact, it's the signature grape there. Tanat from Uruguay is often more lush and has more elegant tannins than those wines from France. Number three, in the USA, you can also find Tanat in California, especially in Lodi and Paso Robles, in Virginia, and in several other states. Number four, Tanat was recognized in the U.S. as a wine grape for varietal bottling for the first time back in 2002. Tablas Creek Winery petitioned the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to recognize Tanat as an approved wine grape, and they use it both as a blending grape and as a single varietal bottling. In the vineyard, Tanat is said to be one of the easiest varieties to grow. The berries have thick skin, which makes it somewhat disease-resistant. The biggest challenge is that the stems are thick and they cling to the berries tightly, which makes destemming difficult. Number six, in Uruguay, Tanat is commonly paired with their popular local asados, wood-fired barbecues, using very high-quality beef. Other high-fat dishes are also good matches. Number seven, 
Common flavors in Tanat are various black fruits like black currant and black cherry, also chocolate, espresso, and smoke. Number eight, many Tanats can benefit from some bottle age, so don't be afraid to lay it down for a while. Wine Folly says the drinking window is from five to 25 years. Although John Rivenberg is about to tell us that some Tanat is ready to drink now. Number nine, Texas producers that have recently won medals for Tanat include Abastris, Augusta Venn, Rustic Spur, Bending Branch, Cicada Cellars, Longhorn Cellars, and Carville Hills Winery. Number 10, in addition to making dry red wines, Tanat can be used to produce rosé and even sparkling rosé. One of my favorites is a sparkling rosé of Tanat by Bending Branch. Number 11, Tanat can even be part of a blend. Cicada Cellars has won awards with its blend of 50% Tanat and 50% Cabernet Sauvignon. This is a common blend in France. The Cabernet Sauvignon is thought to open up the Tanat and make it more approachable. Number 12, in Texas, Tanat grows in the Texas High Plains and in the Texas Hill Country. Texas Wine Lover website lists 37 different vineyards in Texas that include Tanat plantings. If you've stood in the William Chris Vineyards tasting room, you've probably seen Tanat from their high estate growing right in front of you. And finally, number 13, the last report on Texas Vineyards, which was in 2019, reported that Tanat is the number 10 red grape in terms of planted acreage in Texas. There are about 120 bearing acres of Tanat across the state, and production off of those acres was about 350 tons. Tanat is showing significant growth in the state, too. Between 2015 and 2019, about 92 acres of new Tanat started bearing fruit. And that's what I know about Tanat. Try it if you haven't already. I expect that Tanat will start to have an even higher profile in the years to come. Now you're about to hear from Texas Tanat's biggest fan, and you'll see why. If you'd like to read more about Tanat, my sources for this segment include The Wine Bible by Karen McNeil, Wine Folly Magnum Edition by Madeline Paquette and Justin Hammock, the Tablas Creek website, Texas Wine Lover website, and various winery websites. My guest today is John Rivenberg, owner of Kerrville Hills Winery, and the new president of the Texas Hill Country Wineries. He got his start in Texas wine in the early 2000s and was a founder of Bending Branch Winery. Now John runs Kerrville Hills Winery, an incubator for newer wineries, and he consults on a number of topics. He also runs his own wine brand, Rivenberg Wines, and is an active leader in all sorts of Texas wine industry matters. John can definitely talk, and he's got a lot to say about Texas wine. My history in the Texas wine industry started uh, almost 15 years ago now. Um, I was working in the construction industry, and uh, my former father-in-law approached me about starting a winery, and um, I uh, we did. Like, I wish there was some like real interesting, um, sexy story. Like, I was an intern in France or something like that. But no, it was quite literally. Somebody saw skills in me that would translate into the wine business, and I had the opportunity to translate um, my hobbies and skills and um, uh, intelligence into growing grapes and making wine. Um, 
six years ago, I started uh, consulting um, and uh, started Ravenberg Wine. Uh, at Ravenberg Wine, we started consulting and helping people get started, uh, get moving. Then from there, you know, two years ago, it's hard for me to believe it's already been two years. We're, I guess we're in our second year of uh, ownership at Kerbal Hills uh, Winery. You know, uh, here we are, right? Uh, I guess that's probably a real Reader's Digest version of my history in the wine business. Um, I don't think we have enough hours to probably record all the things I've been involved in in the Texas wine industry. Um, but I, I've had many people tell me that, like, uh, I guess I'm the six degrees of Kevin Bacon of Texas wine in a lot of ways. Um, but, I, you know, I love I love what I get to do. So it seems like you do a lot of different things in wine and you have across your career through consulting and so forth. So what, what is your true love when it comes to wine? What is really your passion? Because I know you do work in the vineyard and in the cellar and you're kind of a spokesperson for the industry and you do a lot around sales and marketing and kind of new ways of generating uh, customer interest. So what is it that you love? I would be silly to say that I don't, I, I love it all. I mean, I, like I love every part and piece of it. My biggest frustration is that I don't have enough hours in the day to do every last thing that I want to do. Um, I, you know, there's days that I love being in the cellar with nobody around and just like crawling around and getting into all the wines and seeing what we're doing. There's days that I'd rather be in the vineyard and um, you know, I love pruning time. I was just on the phone earlier with somebody who's a well-seasoned grower calling me wanting my, my kind of two cents uh, here in the Hill Country on some training of some, some second-year vines. I love doing that. Um, I love being a spokesperson for Texas wine and being an advocate and champion for the business uh, of wine in Texas. Um, so there's not, there's, there's not really an aspect I could say that I love more than another. Um, I, I, I just, I'm super passionate, and I love all things Texas wine. Um, if I had to maybe go back and pinpoint one thing, I love the process. I, I love the overarching process of taking something that you um, put in the ground, you baby and you grow and you tend, and then you take it off of that, that vine and you put it into a vat and you produce a, a product that then you get to share uh, with people. Right. So I guess if there's one overarching thing, the full life cycle is what I love. Um, and all things that go into that life cycle from, from farming to, uh, the, the business side of things to the marketing, to the sales, uh, to the production. I love every last bit and piece of it. It seems like you had a specific goal in mind with the purchase of Kerrville Hills winery a few years ago. What is your ultimate plan for that winery? You know, when, when, when the purchase of Kerbal Hills Winery came up, when the Millburgers were so kind to help me get this, uh, like revitalize this dream of having another winery, my goal, quite honestly, was to operate a winery and give a place for my consulting clients to have um, the ability to produce some wines, offset some capital, and so in doing that, it, it kind of organically turned into this teaching laboratory in a way, right? I, I had some folks come to me and say, hey, we, we'd love to make some wine. And, and I said, well, we're, you know, we're, we're not a custom crush. Um, I've done that. I don't really want to do that. And they said, well, we, we don't want a custom crush. We want to 
we want to be part of the winemaking process. We want to learn from start to finish, you know, what does it mean to start a winery, right? And we want to do it and have the ability to do it without having to put $3 million of infrastructure in and then learn that way. And so I was like, huh, you know, that's, that's, that's interesting, right? Like, so the, the back of my mind, those who know me and have known me, I've always wanted to build an incubator in Texas. I've tried, tried 10 years ago. Um, I think the state of Texas is ripe for something like that. And quite honestly, I've never been able to get the state or our associations really behind the idea of doing it. Um, and this is probably a podcast for another time, but you know, there, the directional needs for the industry, um, we need strong leaders, right? And so, uh, the incubation portion of what we're doing has always been something that I've seen for us to do two things, right? Grow businesses with a responsible capital driven approach, right? And also grow businesses in the way that are going to be responsible for, um, broadcasting Texas, right? If we, if you teach the methodology of Texas first, right, in your winemaking and teach people how to bridge the hurdles that come with Texas winemaking and not just say, you've got to go to California and buy juice or you've got to go to, to Oregon and learn how to do this or you, you got to go elsewhere. Not, not to say that, not to say that we don't need those things or we can't, we can't get education from those places, but we need a champion to be able to, teach us what we're doing right and where we need to do it so all of a sudden this like idea that i had 10 years ago and has always kind of rolled around in the back of my mind clicked into gear like what i can utilize this place as an incubator right um we can start to incubate people into the wine business to be texas first right and teach them, teach them the things that I learned with making wine in California, teach them the things that I've learned from my friends in Washington, um, you know, but teach them with the aspect of like, this is how it works in Texas. Um, just because something works in Napa Valley, I can promise you, I guarantee you it does not work here. It's different. Right. Um, and so having this incubator click into gear has been, it, it's been so much fun, right? It's been, it's been invigorating. It's been eye opening. Um, and so that's what we started to do. Like we sometimes, you know, it's, it's educational. Sometimes it's, you know, people learning the nuts and bolts of what it means to own and operate a winery before they go out and own and oper operate a winery. It gives them a really good sense of what it means to have an operated winery without people going like, Oh my God, I, I need to be a mechanic too. Like, oh, crap, I, I need to know plumbing. Yeah, winemaking is plumbing. Winemaking is mechanical ingenuity. Um, you know, it, I often tell people, like, you're, you, need, you need to either be a really good mechanic to be a winemaker or you need to be wealthy enough to hire a really good mechanic to be a winemaker. Um, and so that's part of it. You know, you, your crush pad goes down in the middle of harvest and your equipment's not working. If you don't know how to fix it, you're done until you can find somebody to come and fix it. In the state of Texas, there's probably four people, maybe five, unless one of you, you know somebody who works at a larger winery that can come down and help you troubleshoot a piece of equipment. And in the middle of the harvest, that's that's uh, pretty pretty detrimental. So the incubator has just been all things wine, right? We we have a, a team that's focused on front of the house, right? When people get to the point where they're needing more help with, you know, sales or marketing. 
We've got, you know, we've got a winemaking team. Um, I'm a pretty decent farmer, so we cover a lot of farming aspects for folks. Plus, you know, building that that incubator team, it almost becomes like the Amish barn raising of winemaking, if you will, right? It's kind of all all folks bring something to the table. Everybody has intelligence. Everybody has an idea. And uh, it's it's great to just have this like resource lab that's that's come about. I'm more familiar with a custom crush concept, but I guess the incubator covers more than just uh, winemaking and production, but really covers, like you said, the other wraparound services from sales and marketing to uh, whatever else people might need help with. So it's kind of a think tank, if you will. A think tank is a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, We've got folks that, um, you know, they've never built a tasting room. I've worked on a lot of tasting rooms. I'm, I'm pretty, as much as I don't necessarily like being behind the tasting bar, I'm pretty good at it, right? And so I think that that goes into that passion. Think Tank is a really good way to put it. It's cool. It's sometimes it's like a frat house. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's like a UC center where somebody gets you know a, a read something new, innovative technology or new, innovative idea, and they you know we start talking about it over lunch, and it turns into talking about it through our winemaking. Then it turns into like you know, no, that's not going to work. I did that in 2010, or I did that in 2011, or somebody else going like, well, I tried it, but we did this. And so it's, it's neat, right? It's, it's, it's neat to have that intellectual power behind everything that everybody's doing. And what's it like for a general consumer to come visit Kerrville Hills Winery? I think it's great, right? We're, we're working on a few different things. Um, we've kind of revamped the inside of the tasting room. Uh, 2020 slowed down my exterior uh, upgrade goals for the winery. Um, 2019 and most of 2020 was really focused in on our production areas um, because, you know, in my mind, uh, you can host a great party with a shiny, pretty building, but if your wine isn't worth a damn, it's not worth doing, right? And so we really laser honed in on, you know, getting the production area situated. Um, But we took some time over break last year and we took a month off uh, over the holidays and we kind of revamped our tasting room, making it more cozy. It's more, more homey. Um, we really try to focus on a sit down kind of, uh, tasting experience. Um, moving forward into the future, we're quite honestly trying to elevate the tasting experience more towards the incubation of what we do. And I don't want to go too far off into the weeds, but we're, we're looking at maybe having a, uh, a couple of off-site multi-incubation tasting rooms around the state where everybody who's involved with the incubator can be part of those tasting rooms. But then the home, the home property or the state property will be, um, and this is a long way off, uh, would be more private event driven club driven. Um, and where you could come in, and uh, any given Sunday or Saturday, you could set up an appointment with C. Bonet. And they, you could come in and taste the Barbara. Or you could set up an appointment with Mike Nelson at Abastris and maybe come and do a private tasting, barrel tasting with Mike. Or, um, you know, you could come and do one with me or with Haley, the assistant winemaker here. Um, and really try to up the, up the level of, of uh, not necessarily presentation, but experience through like a collaborative nature, right? We want to try and do once a month, 
have multi wine multi winemaker tastings in here where you can come in and there's different winemakers in different places and you you set a reservation for noon and you're here for an hour or two and you taste through all the different wines for X amount of dollars and that's what you get to do. Um, just a more direct experience with Texas wine. I think people are hungry for that level of education and one-on-one um, interaction with winemakers. So I think that's a great idea. Thank you. I was on a call with Haley for um, Women for Wine Sense group. And Haley was on and she shared, I believe it was a Picpoul Blanc. No, it was a Blanc du Bois, right? Her Blanc du Bois. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, so I got yeah. to taste that. And she told me that there are an awful lot of women making wine with you. There are. Yeah, we, uh, we have, uh, we've got quite the crew. Um, I think that women have uh, an amazing place in the wine industry. I think they make fantastic winemakers. Um, we didn't, I got to tell you, we didn't like set out to be the winemaker house for women. It just kind of naturally gravitated that way. Um, Haley, my assistant winemaker, her and her wife have a brand called 10 Mile Productions um, based out of Brownwood. I'm very proud of what she's she's produced. She's got a long way to go, but she's got, she's got some chops. She's going to do some great things in the Texas wine industry. Um, I tried to talk her out of making that Blanc de Bois, quite honest. I'll be honest with you. I tried to talk her out of making it. Did you? Yeah, I did. I, I told her, I was like, Haley, come on. We're, we have access to like 47 different vineyards and you're going to pick Blanc de Bois, but come on, you know, and she made it and the wine is fantastic. I got to give her credit. It's absolutely, it's, it's probably one of two Blanc de Bois still white wines that I've had that I would say, yeah, that's, that's pretty damn good. Um, but beyond Haley, we have uh, Barbara Lacona from Cibonet. Uh We've got uh, Nikki Nara Davis from Colossi. Uh, we have um, uh, Jen Rossi. She's a young lady starting a brand uh, called The Cause Urban Winery out of uh, Houston. And she's going to be, along with her husband, Drew, they're going to be doing a, an urban winery in downtown Houston somewhere. I, location, I think, is still yet to be um, uh, fixed on. Then we have um, uh, Elisa Hens. Uh, her and her husband, Chris, are doing Jones Hens. Or I think they may have a different name for it now, but I like Jones Hens, so that's what I keep calling it. Um, she's great. Her and her father grow some grapes, uh, down, uh, the Eastern part of the state. Um, uh, we have my sister, Olivia. Uh, Olivia is fantastic. She's 20. She's going to, uh, go through some tech programs. She's uh, been in, she did an internship year, here for a year. Then I offered her a job and she's in her uh, second year of employment here at the winery. And she's uh, our cellar technician and she's made some wines for herself also. Um, she did a Zen uh, in 2019 and a Tempranillo this last year. And uh, I'm very impressed with the young lady. She's worked real hard and she's, she's like duck to water. Um, and I only wish that I had that opportunity at 20 years old to be two years already in the wine industry. Um, we have, um, K 
Kelly Hagemeyer, who's the prettier, smarter half of my world. Um, she's also our general manager, but she's been working on some wines also. And this year, she's going to kind of get a little bit more involved in the winemaking process in the back. I read somewhere that you said that it's your central career ambition to foster the development of highly talented winemakers. True. That's a great statement. If I said that, then I sound really intelligent. Yeah, I, I you did. Said that. Okay. All right. <laughs> or someone wrote that on your behalf. I don't know which. <laughs> I probably said it. I have these glimpses of like verbal greatness at times. And then I like, you know, I'm not through my coffee yet and I don't really, uh, you know, remember. I, I love mentoring and teaching, um, I want my legacy to be known as I really brought something to the Texas wine industry, both from a, from an innovative standpoint with my growing techniques and the fruit varietals that I've championed to, um, you know, the wines that I have made personally for myself or for my brand and other brands. Um, and then most importantly, like I want to be known as somebody who fostered the growth of like, you know, a lot of our great winemakers, you know, I think it's, I think that's, would be a really cool legacy to have. That's excellent. You have a, a larger than life reputation, but you're just very easy to talk to. So I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's funny. I hear that Shelly. Like I hear that and I hear like, Oh, you're a lot nicer than I thought you would be. Or you're not nearly as arrogant as I thought you would be. Or, you know, like, wow. You know, I, I, it's funny because like we talk and like people get to know me and it's like it, people are around the people that are around me a lot are just like, you know, I hear that. And it's funny because I don't, I don't know that sometimes my passion is often mistaken for over arrogance, I think sometimes. And I don't mean it to be, I really, I really don't. Like I would quite literally give people the shirt off my back to make them like better at what they do. Um, you know? And so I, that is something that is, uh, I always try to do this, like January, we see and I, you know, Hill Country Wineries have worked together for well over a decade with each other. And she knows me probably better than just about anybody. And I always tell her, like, did I, how, did I come across like too pushy? Like, did I, you know, did I, you know, I, I, I I'm very cognizant of that, if you, if you will. And I, and I don't mean to be in any way, shape or form. And so no, I appreciate that. Cause I like, I love what I get to do. And I, I will say I am very opinionated and I'm not much for, curbing those opinions, but those opinions are based in experience and they're based in like knowledge and they're not based on just like BS stuff I heard from somebody else or saw on Instagram. It's like, that's, I was there. Right. And so I feel like I should or have earned the right to have an opinion about it. Of course. Well, and Texas wine needs strong leaders. Like you said, I understand that you have been around uh, the block before in terms of being a leader in the Texas Hill country wineries and you are either have just started or are about to start a term as president. I know that in the past you've been president, vice president, maybe legislative committees across the state, this and that. So what is what is special and different about this year and your term that you're starting? Um, yeah, thank you for asking about that. Hill Country Winers is very near and dear to my heart. That, that organization has been uh, championed and fostered by a lot of really great leaders in our state. Um, and I have held, I've been the president. This will be the second time I have been vice president multiple times, chair of the legislative committee again this year. Uh, it was in the past. Um, it's really funny. There's probably not a 
there's not a board position in the state or organization I haven't set on at some point now that I think about it. Um, it's funny. You don't really scroll through your resume in your head until you're like, when you're a busybody until you sit and you're asked that question. It's like, Oh my goodness. Like, that's crazy. I, like I have a TDA, uh, wine advisory panel meeting this afternoon at one o'clock. Uh, but anyway, Hill country wineries, I, I, we have such a special thing going on in the Hill country. And I've thought that for 15 years of my life. I thought that when I first got into this business and there were nine wineries in the Hill country, um, I, I thought that when I left my first 10 year uh, with Hill Country Wineries and we had grown from thir- nine to 13 to 27. Um, and to think that in a very short amount of time, because I'm, I'm not that old of a guy, uh, that we have jumped to 61 or 62 members of the organization. And not to mention the other wineries that aren't in the organization, but still ancillarily support the growth of the Hill Country. Um what I'm looking forward to for this year, quite honestly, is I really want to continuously bring the focus of where we are in our overall quality of Texas wines coming out of Texas, but then primarily out of the Hill Country. Um, we are making some just flat-ass world-class wines, and I, I am, uh, I am going to use this year to do my very best to promote that fact. And not apologize. I think we spent a lot of time in my in the past, you know, kind of by Texas nature. We're supposed to be modest, right? Like you're supposed to be humble. Oh, shucks, yeah, that's yeah. I got a big ranch. Thank you very much. You know, that's great. But you know, California didn't get to be California by being second fiddle to France, right? Um, they said, no, we can compete. We can do this. Like we can, we can make world-class wines. And so I, you know, I want people to know that we can make world-class wines. And so as the president, my goal this year is to really focus in on our marketing, um, really focus in on our message of the Texas Hill Country, right? But then also um, support the entirety of the Texas wine industry. Um, Cause it's not just the Texas Hill Country, right? I mean, we we work all over the state um, and the hill country is supported by all other parts of the region of the of the state and so it's my goal to first and foremost promote uh texas and then really laser focus in and support and market texas hill country wines and texas hill country aba offerings that, that's my goal for the year i will always uh, I will always buy grapes out of the high plains. Um, I think that's a beautiful ABA. I think there's nuances of that that are amazing. I mean, honestly, Shelly, this state is so damn big. There are places that I've been to that grow grapes that people would be just dumbfounded. And then, moreover, dumbfounded by the quality in which they're producing grapes. Um, do I think that there are nuances of differences between grapes from the high plains and the hill country? Absolutely. There's varietals, and we don't have to get into it now, but there's varietals that I would rather see grown in the high plains versus the hill country that I think produce better qualities um, because of the, you know, because of the altitude, because of the arid nature, um, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I will always buy grapes from the Texas high plains. The beauty of Texas is like, I had a mentor one time, this is a French guy, he's really great. And he only did Bordeaux wines, right? 
he only did Bordeaux wine. So he consulted other places in the world. And when I got to meet him, it was only socially. It was never, it was not professionally, but like he told me, he's like, it's a beautiful thing that you guys in Texas, you get to make wines from all these different regions and still get to be Texas. Right. So it's like, I liken it to being a, a French winemaker that gets to make wine from Bordeaux, from Burgundy, from the Rhone, from Languedoc, from, you know, from every region uh, of, of like nuance, right? We get, we get the benefit of making wines from all these different places with all these different nuances. And we're not pigeonholed into one specific, you know, place. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's the beauty of being in the new world where we're not so restricted by, I mean, tradition's lovely, but it's also very restrictive, right? Of course. Yeah. I mean, Otis actually said it best. This is a brave new world. Texas is, there are no rules, right? That's one of the things I teach people in consulting all the time is they're like, well, I've got to do a Bordeaux blend. Well, do you? Like, do you have to? Like, you might be amazed what throwing some Sagrantino in your Bordeaux blend might do. You can't do, they like, they look at you like that's insanity, right? But, you know, I was always taught that the goal is to make the best wine, period. And Texas gives us the opportunity to do that because it is the brave new world. So when we met for the first time out at Abastris, when I was helping with Harvest, you told me a story about an old French man who rubbed off on you a little bit because you developed a superstition. Can you tell the listeners about your superstition about wine during harvest? Oh, about drinking wine during harvest? Which one? There's, he, there's a bunch. I don't know how many of them are podcast worthy uh, or appropriate. Uh, he was French. You know, there's many superstitions that I have behind um, you know, wines. Like I, one of them started out as kind of a superstition. I don't drink finished wine during harvest. I don't know if that's the one that I mentioned to you. I don't drink any finished wine during harvest. Um, I, I every year auto tune my palate towards grape flavor, fruit flavors coming out of the vineyard, fermentation flavors. I keep a journal. I've been slowly but surely trying to teach um, others that technique. Nope. Nobody else follows it. I got to tell you that. Like I'm the only one who does it. So at heart, like I'm, I'm the only one, right? Um, but it, it's worked for me. It's worked for me for a few years. Um, that is, that is probably my, my biggest, uh, superstition around, um, wines, um, at harvest time. Um, I have some other ones about, I have some other vineyard ones too, that are, you know, about timing of harvesting and, those type of things. But yeah. I want to focus for a moment on Tanat, which I know is your grape that you are promoting heavily. And um, I even want to hear about the Tanat Council of Texas, which I understand started as a joke, but maybe now it's a real thing. So what is it about Tanat? You know, Tanat, um, you have broached probably my absolute favorite subject in the, in the wine industry whether it be in Texas or California or anywhere else, um, for that matter. Um, Tanat's an amazing grape. Um, you know, with the exception of 2020, Tanat systematically in the high plains for whatever reason just took a big hit with the 19 freeze event that we had. Um, but if you look at all the years prior, Tanat's been a, you know, for, Tanat for 10 years, Tanat has been a constant producer 
constantly thriving, constantly surviving. Um, and it's been a great grape for Texas. I, uh, in the hill country, I'll, I'll narrow it down into specifically the hill country. Um, I've always had a saying, like, I, I just didn't really preface this story with, I, I had two very influential people in my life that raised me. Um, one, uh, my grandfather's and one was, a one was a wily old hill country kind of cowboy guy. And the other was a, uh, Colonel in the Air Force and a physician. And so very vastly different approaches to life in a lot of ways. Um, and so, uh, I, I have these kind of like these stories that I, that I always kind of liken things back to. And I, to is like, Tanat's like your your quarterback's son, right? He always does the right thing. He always gets straight A's. He says yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. He shows up on time. He does his homework. He, you know, helps the every little old lady across the street. Um, it, it's just the, the the perfect kid, right? That analogy may not be so PC these days, but that's what it is. It, you put it in the ground in the hill country, and it grows straight, and it grows right, and it's disease resistant, and it's big, thick, leathery leaves. Um, you know, it, it helps with, uh, you know, vapotranspiration. It's just, it just grows really well. And if something grows really well, it's going to make a good wine. Now there's other varietals out there that are doing that as well, right? I mean, we haven't even probably scratched the surface of what all opportunities lie in store for us, but I'm not going to recreate the wheel, right? To not works. It works well, grows well in the hill country, consistently has amazing chemistries, um, and you know, I think it's a varietal that we need to be laser focusing on. You know, I obviously have spent a, more than a decade of my life laser focusing in on this varietal. Um, uh, have I taken some heat? Yeah. Hell, I've had lots of people tell me that, you know, I've pushed to not way too much in the state, but I'm sure they probably told the same thing to Robert Mondavi when he was planting cab in the Valley, like a crazy man. Um, and so to that, I just say, well, sorry that you didn't get on the boat when the boat was leaving the station, right? Or the dock, rather. Um, it, the varietal consistent, I can just, I'll speak to a couple of vineyards. You know, for years, Rustic Spur Vineyard was producing quite literally what they would call, quote unquote, perfect chemistries, right? Um, that's another conversation when you get into the conversation of perfect, perfect chemistries. I don't think there are any perfect chemistries. I think there are perfect situations, perfect flavors for perfect scenarios in which a wine can be made. Um, if you try to chase quote unquote book driven, perfect chemistries, well, you're going to be a very frustrated winemaker in Texas all the time, hands down. I can pretty much guarantee that that is going to be a fact. And if you don't believe that, then you're probably not really making wine or you don't really know what you're talking about. That's just how it is. Um, but rustic spur vineyard by quote unquote book chemistries has produced perfect fruit numbers every single year that it's produced. Um, like 24, it, it, it just over the year, over the last four years, there's been a range of anywhere from 23 and a half to 26 bricks, never a pH above three, seven, never a pH above three, seven, um, never drop a disease. This last year we had some reduced numbers. We put a little bit more fruit on. And so we were down in the 23 and a half, 24 brick range, but it still made a lovely wine. The phenolics are amazing. The tannins are amazing. Um, and so for years I thought, wow, this is just, this vineyard is just a honey hole, right? It's just really, 
like the Mills family and Cher are just doing such a killer job and our, our kind of conventional, non-conventional approach to farming where we're doing a little bit of sustainability, a little bit of conventional, you know, wisdom, um, and kind of a happy medium between those things has, has been producing something really nice. Well, then here comes Abastris and we plant to not at Abastris. Holy crap. Last year and this year, perfect numbers, right? Like chemistries were amazing. Fruit set was great. You know, like it was the, the least hurdled wine. I'm going to move forward. I'm talking to Chris, you know, down the road, Chris Brenner, they, you know, they grow to not at, at their state. Chris is like, yeah, it's great numbers, beautiful fruit. And so, you know, I just, over the years, I, it's finally come to this compilation here in this last year in 2020 that like, crap, and it's not in the hill country, you know, is really starting to show me the evidence of all the things that I thought it would do when consistently farmed in a certain manner. And uh, I just, I love it, you know? And so I jokingly, I started, um, I started these, oh, not to mention it, you know, shameless plug, like the Rustic Spur and the Rivenberg and the Kerbal Hills uh, Tanats, they all consistently won gold medals so far in all the, all the major events this year. And so I look forward to seeing what it does in some larger scale competitions. I know people say competitions don't matter, but they do to me and they do to the consumer. And so I, I think that you start to see these consistent, you know, wins, win after win after win. Um, you can't deny those things, right? They, people try and they're going to, they're going to try because it doesn't fit their PR narrative, right? But that's what it is. So when you get this grapefruit in, how do you handle it in the cellar? Because obviously it's not known as having aggressive tannins. So how do you make a, a wine that's drinkable now, or are you less concerned about it being drinkable now and more concerned about the ageability? Um, I think that there's, there's, there's twofold to that answer, to the answer to this question. Um, to not in Texas lends itself to making multiple styles of wines. Right? As you get to know a varietal as well as I do like to not. There, you can make everything. We just released a beautiful rosé for Shara Mills' first uh, release from their estate. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, Tanat can produce anything from a massive, inky, tannin-driven, you know, rip-your-face-off wine that really can't be consumed for five years, or depending on how it's handled in the cellar, it can be made into a very delicate, very drinkable, you know, um, wine that's aged 16 to 18 months. Um, I think a lot of that goes into, um, I think that goes into yeast selection. I think that goes into temperature range of fermentation. Um, I think that, you know, one of my biggest tools, uh, it is scary, but one of the biggest tools that I use for taming of tannins is extended macerations. Um, I think they go a long way towards a wine being more approachable earlier. Um, I have a tendency to go more towards the big, massive tannins that most people you can't hardly drink the wine. You know, you've got to, <laughs> it's got to open. It's got to open for two days before you can actually even like start to consume or taste the fruit past everything else. Um, but so, Tanat is pretty, pretty much handled 
depending on what the program is and in different in different avenues right in different ways um my to knots for for Kerber Hills Winery are going to be more my traditional tanat style. They're going to be bigger. They're going to be lots of phenolic, lots of tannin, uh, very little oak, and um, a lot of fruit when they open. When you say little oak, do you mean you use neutral barrels primarily? So, yeah, I mean, we use neutral, but I mean, even if you use neutral, you can pump up the oak by putting a ton of staves in it, right? I mean, that's pretty common. I mean, it's a common thing. You can make a neutral barrel represent 100% oak expression. It just doesn't do it as quickly, right? Like that's the difference between a new oak barrel, 100% new oak, brand new, shiny, pretty oak barrel, and taking a neutral barrel and adding oak staves to it is the time in which they represent the oak nature, right? Um, It takes longer for the staves, but I think the integration is a little nicer in a lot of ways. I think oak can be used as a too big of a crutch at times, in my opinion. Um, I think it can be used to hide things. Um, we've all done it. It's what you know, it's what it is. Um, and then some people just stylistically love a lot of oak in their wine. I particularly, this goes to a style driven thing. I particularly love the fruit nature, right? Like I'm, I consider myself a, a steady handed steward of the things that people do in a vineyard. And so I like those things to express themselves first. Um, I read that in France that it's common for them to use micro-oxygenation to make their wines more approachable. Is that a technique that's uh, done a lot in Texas, or is it t- something we don't talk about? Oh, I, man, I'll talk about anything. I, I don't particularly care for it, to be honest with you. Um, I don't like the way that the wine comes out structurally after micro-ox. Um, and I'm also kind of cheap, Shelly, to be honest with you. Um, I am very value minded first. Um, and if you can do something without buying tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, um, all micro oxygenation is doing is trying to rapidly force the hand of mother nature in time. Right. Um, that's micro oxygenation is the same thing that's happening in an oak barrel. They're just trying to do it quicker with the machine. Right. And I, I just don't see how that's any better. I, I, there are some places where I'm very much into in, innovative technologies, but there's other places where there's just some things you just can't get around Mother Nature in time. And that's one of them. And so the Tanat Council of Texas, is that a real organization with plans or is it just kind of a fun reason to drink some Tanat with your friends? So, yeah, I, I don't know if you noticed how I tried to skirt away from that in my long-winded uh, dissertation on Tanat, but, I, you know, the Tanat Council of Texas, quite honestly, it was me sitting up one night playing with a new app that I got on my phone for, you know, making memes or whatever. And, and I just, at the bottom, I put PSA brought to you by the Tanat Council of Texas. And uh, so I put that on a couple of posts and my phone the next day exploded, exploded. From everything from, wow, man, this is so cool and this is hilarious to what on God's green earth are you doing? Are you trying to take over Texas with this? You know, it's like, come on, guy. Like, no, I'm not trying to create some new thing to put everybody else out of business, like uh, from a industry standpoint. Uh, quite honestly, it was a joke that I found that was funny. But the interest that I received from my friends and colleagues that grow to not, and they're interested in to not, it made me think about, 
you know, much like how the, how organically the incubator came back around to the thought process of like this big kind of group think tank, you know, innovation is, is generated by, uh, you know, interest and, and uh, intellect. And I was like, well, people keep asking, you know, maybe this isn't a bad idea. Maybe we should like, you know, maybe I should keep my foot on the gas about promoting to not in the state of Texas. Um, maybe I should stop apologizing for being the big champion of Tanat when, you know, I've had peers and colleagues go, oh, well, if it's Ravenberg, you know, you're going to get Tanat in your venue. Well, yeah, damn it, you are, because it's good. And I'm not, and I, I kind of got to the point where, like, I was tired of apologizing, Shelly, for, like, the hard work that I put in. And um, I just decided that, yeah, we're going to make it a real thing. So it's very much in the, in the you know, very young stages Um we got busy with the holidays. We got busy with family. We got busy with gearing up for 2021. But yeah, I know that's not Council of Texas is going to be something that uh, we're gonna we're gonna produce like-minded um, intellectual information on Tanat. We're going to pitch it to the state if we have to use uh, you know some social media to do that. Great if we do some informational tastings where it's just Tanat tastings. Um, I think we have enough people making it now to, to make that happen. And if I can champion this varietal as one of the foundation for Texas wine, great. I would attend a Tanat masterclass at Kerrville Hills Winery if you were to have one someday. That would be awesome. We actually, okay, so funny enough, um, Kerrville, something that's been rolling around in my mind, and Kelly, Kelly's going to hear this, and she's probably going to poke me in the eye when she hears it because I'm like I'm talking about stuff that hasn't really come to fruition yet. But they Kerrville has a theater um, called the Arcadia, and it's beautiful. Like the this board and these families went in, they completely renovated this old theater in in Kerrville that's right on the river, and it quite literally like it's it's second to none. Like they went all out and it's a gorgeous place. And so that's one of the things I've been thinking about doing is having a to not masterclass or a to not, to not symposium, if you will, um, at that location. Um, if we can get it, if we can get it put together and Michael, the general manager is probably going to hear this too and go like, well, thanks for including me in that conversation, John. Um, but that's, what's been rolling around in my head is that, that very thing, you know, and that's the kind of things that I want to take, out to, out to Texas. Now, granted, those things take money. Those things take effort. Um, and, uh, you know, it may be, <laughs> it may be me, Mike Nelson, Shara Mills and Brock Estes jumping in my pickup truck and driving around and tasting wines wherever we can for whoever will listen. But that's how every great thing starts, right? That's right. Got to have a dream. I have one more topic that I want to talk to you about. Uh, on Saturday, I logged in and listened to the William Chris virtual tasting and Chris Brundrett said that he had recently had dinner with you. Yeah. Oh, he did? All right. Uh, some of the discussion centered around what he's calling the great compromise. Oh, so oh, I've oh, talked oh. on the podcast before <laughs> that for a wine to be labeled Texas, it actually only has to have 75% Texas grapes. And Chris and many others have been pushing 100% Texas grapes for a while. Mm -hmm. But according to Chris, there is a, a new bill that the whole industry is getting behind. And, and tell me if I have this right. So basically, if the wine label includes an AVA, like Texas High Plains, Texas Hill Country, etc., or a county, like Terry County, then that would require 95% grapes from that AVA or county 
And the other 5% would have to be from Texas. So you could be guaranteed that you are drinking a 100% Texas wine if your wine bottle has the AVA or county listed. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Yeah. Yeah, you sure did. Um, that is uh, the great compromise. I'm sorry. I'm still kind of laughing at the great compromise comment. Oh, only, Chris, only Chris would like, you know, the Thriller at Manila, the great compromise. <laughs> You know, like I love Chris and I love him for that. We're 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 good friends, and so if I poke at him a little bit, it's it's okay. Um, we did have a great dinner the other night. Um, like I said, Chris has been Chris has been a friend since his days. Uh, you know, coming out of Woodrose, starting William Chris when he and Bill first got going, and um, Chris and I have been involved for many years and lots of. Um, legislative activities. I, I chose five years ago to kind of stay away from the fray of the 100% Texas just because quite honestly, like I needed to grow a business. Um, but I think, I think it's a, I think those are all important things. I will say I've been very impressed by, and I don't want to speak for Chris and or for Brian Heath, um, the two folks that are involved in, in this uh, innovative compromise over this bill. But um I will say looking from the outside in and being a party to being part of the conversation, I'm very impressed with what these two guys are endeavoring in, right? Um, there's no, there's no hiding that it's been a very contentious topic in the state over the last few, few years, the last few sessions, uh, this last session, it, it was very contentious and just, Quite honestly, it was counterproductive for Texas and for Texas wine. Um, and I think these guys, and I applaud these guys both very much for recognizing that and setting their uh, their differences aside and working together to create something that is going to be truly beneficial long-term for Texas. Um, now, this doesn't impede anybody's ability to continue to use Texas on the label and do 75% Texas wine and 25% of wherever else it comes from. Um, but this will ensure that when people get a wine in Texas and it's got an AVA or a vineyard designate on it, that it will be a hundred percent from Texas and then 95% obviously from that AVA or that, you know, that County designate that needs to be. Um, I think it's a great thing. I think it's time. The only way that we're going to get the ability to be taken completely seriously is if we do this. And th this is John Rivenberg, you know, talking. John Rivenberg, the winemaker, speaking. I'm not speaking for anybody else or on behalf of any organization or anything else. Um, this is just, this is my thoughts um, based on experiences I've had. I've had national writers sit across from me and say, man, we love all these wines. But, you know, are they all 100% Texas? Well, these two or three are. Oh, well, we, okay, well, great. You know, we'll get back to us when everything you're doing is 100% Texas. And that stinks, right? Like to know you're working super hard and to have something be almost quasi pulled out of the, underneath you, the rug underneath you, because you're not doing something in their eyes that is quote unquote legitimate, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. But the, I'm still rolling around with the great compromise in the back of my head. I can't. I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to see the movie posters for that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's important. And those guys have done some great work. Um, we had a really great, before that dinner, we had a really great conversation, Chris, Brian, and I, 
um, on the intentions of the the bill, the intentions of how it moves forward. And I think there's a lot of really good industry leaders working on making this happen right now. Who's Brian? I don't think I know him. Uh, Brian Heath, the owner of Grape Creek. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, he's, you know, Brian's, Brian's got some, some, Brian's a super intelligent guy and he's got some really strong opinions and, um, they're all, they're all rooted in some really good business operations. Um, and some, uh, Brian's a research monster. Like he's, he's a, he'll research and research and research and research. And, um, you know, he's had his reasons why he wasn't for the regulation. And I, I'm not certainly not going to speak for him as to why, because you know, I don't know, but, um, that is where, this all kind of oriented from is Chris and Brian sitting down and coming up with this plan. And, uh, you know, now they're, now they have taken it out to the rest of the wine industry, um, the rest of the leadership of different organizations. And we're all working very diligently to get everybody on board to make sure that we can make this happen. Cause the last thing we want to do is take something to the legislature and, did look silly, right? I mean, the infighting in our industry has to kind of stop, quite honestly. Like for us to be taken seriously inside the state and outside the state, it, it has to it has to stop. And we have to start supporting Texas first, um, no matter what that means. And I still want to come poke around and do a barrel tasting or something. So when I'm in Kerrville. Well, you can't. I mean, we, let's see, last year we made, I'll probably get the number off a little bit, but we made... We made 39 varietals from 27 vineyards. Wow. Yeah. With uh, 12 wine, 12 wine operations. Um, so some cool stuff. So yeah, Shelly, anytime you're here, like, I, I mean, I, I, I would give this invitation to anybody who's listening, anybody that wants to come and listen, like shoot me a text, like, call me, come find out what we're doing. Like I, I absolutely love sharing what we do. Um, if you've never been to Kerrville, come down here. Um, if you, you don't even have to go to Kerrville. You can just come to the winery and hang out. We've got, you know, we're 30 acres that we call it, you know, hanging on the hill. We're up here on this hilltop, just making wine and talking wine and enjoying uh, what we do. Yeah. We now have May, May Newsom. I don't know if you know who May Newsom is. May Newsom was a winemaker at Driftwood for a while. She. Um, Nolan Newsom's wife and she's started a food truck um, she's Chinese now she's a Chinese national she's started making Cantonese uh, dumplings in her dumpling food truck up here at the winery right so like we're now quasi incubating food too apparently nice. so, which is which is great in a lot of ways other than the fact that I've eaten more dumplings in the Kung Fu Panda <laughs> at this point um, but because uh, I love them they're like they're so addictive he's like oh I brought you some more samples I'm like fantastic um, but yeah, come on down. Anybody that wants to come and see us, this place is, it's fun. And it's a, it's an easy, relaxed, laid back experience to learn about wine. Well, I know you're juggling so many things and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, I'm, it's all my pleasure. I really appreciate being on here and having the opportunity to talk about Texas wine. Well, I got to tell you, Shelly, I, you bring, and I think I, I think you and I spoke about this 
probably a year ago, maybe, you know, um, you're bringing, you're bringing a, a, a much needed avenue for winemakers and grape growers and uh, psalms to talk about all things Texas wine. And I, I appreciate from somebody who's, who's uh, fought the fight for a long time, like I appreciate it. I appreciate what you do. I appreciate what your your contemporaries and colleagues are doing for Texas wine. There's a few of y'all that have gotten it really right and are working really hard, um, and not as your day job to to promote things that that I get to do, you know, for a living. And I I, I can tell you that when we're sitting around and we're talking, your name comes up and we appreciate it. Well, you're kind. Wow. It's the truth. (laughs) Thank you, John, for being a guest on the podcast. See you soon at Carville Hills. Just a quick reminder that Texas Hill Country Wineries has tickets on sale for February's Wine Lovers Celebration. It starts February 1st, right around the corner. By purchasing tickets, you can explore the Texas Hill Country and 45 of its unique wineries on a 26-day self-guided tour. Tickets include complimentary tastings at each winery that's participating and exclusive discounts on bottle purchases. You'll need reservations at most of the wineries, and hours vary. Tickets are $100 per couple or $65 for an individual. Check out all the details on TexasWineTrail.com. Remember that all the show notes for this episode are at thisistexaswine.com. That's where you'll find the links to all the news stories I just shared. While you're there, you can also sign up for the newsletter or click support the podcast tab. Please help your Texas wine-loving friends find this podcast. Most people find out about podcasts through word of mouth, so please help me grow the audience. Please email me with any feedback or questions. Who would you like to see on the show? What has been your favorite episode so far? Or just say hi. I really appreciate people who take a moment to send me a message. My email is texaswinepod at gmail.com. Also follow the podcast at texaswinepod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or if you've got a question or comment that you'd like to leave as a voicemail, I have a Google voicemail box that's ready for your messages 24-7. The number is 802 585 one two eight six. Maybe I'll play your comment or question on the next show. Texas Wine Lover is the website to visit whenever you have a question about a Texas winery or a Texas vineyard. That address is txwinelover.com. Jeff Cope is a great supporter of the Texas wine industry and also helps promote this podcast. Thanks, Jeff. And thank you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. I'll be back in about two weeks with another episode. Cheers, y'all.